Rescue the Fosters is about changing the foster system. We want to ensure every child has a safe environment to grow and become healthy, successful adults. Additionally, when I was in the foster care system, I had to defend for myself. Rescue the Foster is here to empower the youth aging out of the system and offer resources to ensure they are not dependent on the government. What we observed was that children become institutionalized and end up in prison and providing the government with more funds. Rescue the Foster will provide coaching, resume writing, interview skills, professional attire for interviews, budgeting, applying for college, and obtaining housing. We want these youth to live the most free, successful life possible. It is their right and our responsibility to ensure that our future kids and grandchildren can live happy lives. Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Good evening and welcome to Rescue the Fosters. And this is a special edition. This is our whistleblower edition. The night we've all been waiting for. We are so proud of the people that we have on the screen right now and uh, just honor their courage and their bravery. And we are looking for more people just like them to come out of the industries, the agencies, anything in state or federal business, anywhere you need to whistleblow and you see children being trafficked or abuses, we need you to come forward. And that's what this show is about tonight. I am so proud to have all these people here. I'm going to go ahead and introduce myself. I am Gino, your co-host and sitting right next to me, as always, the co-founder and co-host of Rescue the Fosters, Miss Sylvia Beachy. Sylvia, how are you tonight? I'm good, Gino. How are you? I am super excited about this show. I almost didn't sleep last night. No, I did, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it's a very important show. We we need to get the word out. And uh, we've been talking about this for a long time. It's time for action. So that day has come, and this is the start of it. We uh, have a couple returning guests. We have Aaron Stevenson, the DHS whistleblower. Aaron, how are you tonight? I'm doing very well. How are you, man? I'm doing good, man. Thanks for showing up. We appreciate you, as always. And Aaron was the first whistleblower to come out of uh, a federal agency and blow the whistle on child trafficking and uh, with Project Veritas. And also uh, convinced and encouraged Tara Lee Rodas to come out from the HHS. She is another whistleblower, and you have seen her go viral many times. Uh, just appeared before Congress a couple months ago and uh, did an amazing job. In fact, I'm going to include that link a little later if it's, I don't know if I put that in there. I can't remember. I'll have to check. It, it might already be in the description. If it isn't, I'm going to add that link because you need to watch that video. Tara, how are you tonight? I'm doing great. Gino, thanks so much for having us on here. And uh, as you know, one voice makes a difference. And so I really appreciate that you're doing this special whistleblower edition to call more people to come forward to lend their voice to this problem. So thanks, Gino and Sylvia. Well, thank you so thank much you, for the kind words. We appreciate it. And we also have a very special guest tonight, a new whistleblower, someone that has uh, a ton of courage coming on. And she's a little nervous. And we don't blame her. We're all a little nervous, to be honest. But that's okay. We're human beings. We get nervous. But Deborah White is also an HHS whistleblower and worked alongside Tara. They are friends and co-employees in the uh, 
HHS uh, system, I'm going to call it. I always call them systems because I think we need to make that known that there are things that are systemic and some systemic things are good. Most are very bad. And that's what we're trying to expose tonight, the very bad part of the systems. So Deborah, how are you tonight? Thank you so much for joining us. We are so proud to have you. Hi, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm doing great. I uh, appreciate you uh, letting everyone know that I'm a little nervous. So if I stumble a little bit, just uh, give me that grace. <laughs> yeah. But uh, happy to be here and just really thankful that you're doing the good work um, that needs to be done. So thank you again for having me. Well, thank you. And uh, you are amongst friends here. And uh, this is a very patriotic chat that we always have. And uh, most of the people watching these shows are on our side. Thank God. Um, we don't have many trolls out there. Although every now and then one will one will stroll in. But let's get right at it. Um, Sylvia, you want to go ahead and uh, introduce Aaron and uh, let's start with him. Sure. Um, well, so Aaron is kind of our trickle effect uh, whistleblower because of him, Tara came forward and now uh, Deborah. So I, I want you to go first and encourage others to come forward uh, because we need you. We need all the whistleblowers in the system. If you are a staff member, if you're a case manager, if you're a transporter, if you are any type of worker, actually, if you're a therapist, if you're a counselor, if you're a psychiatrist, uh, if you work in the schools, anyone that works with children, daycare, aftercare programs, any type of activities, if you are witnessing and observing trafficking, we need you to come forward. Um, so, Aaron, I'll let you take it away. All right. Um, so first off, Deborah, you crushed the opening, so don't be nervous, okay? Um, as far as me, okay, so um, I used to be a, a DHS federal employee. I was an intelligence research specialist, which is a fancy way of saying intel analyst. And I was working out of uh, USCIS, which is uh, United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. One of my duties while I was working there was I represented um, part of my unit of USCIS is called FDNS. That's the Fraud Detection National Security People. So we already got the umbrella effect going. So you got DHS, right? You have all these people under here, like ICE, um, CBP, USCIS. Under there, you have more groups. Mine's called FDNS. And I would represent FDNS along with a colleague at what was uh, called the Transnational Organized Crime Working Group. So I went there in, I'm pretty sure it was 2015. I, I keep screwing up the beginning year. It's either 2015 or 2016. But when I was there, we were setting up this watch list for transnational organized criminals. So at this point in time, uh, the United States is already aware of how to do what's called the war on terror. We have the you know terrorism, uh, the terrorism uh, screening database, the TSDB or the terror watch list, and that was our mechanism of how to watch bad guys that are terrorists. Okay, that's pretty easy. You know, people coming in the country, people leaving the country, people doing stuff out of the country. They're on a watch list. We are looking and we know what they do. Well, now there's another thing coming up called transnational organized criminals. And these are literally gangs that operate between two different countries, one of those being the United States. So this started under Obama and it was still a, um, a pilot program, if you will, uh, by the time Trump got elected. Well, when Trump comes in, he adds on a few different gangs to this watch list. Uh, three of them specifically were MS-13, um, AT Street Gang, as well as, uh, well, they, well, actually there's quite a few cartels. But that started seeing a lot more encounters when it came to USCIS. So by about 2017, we're seeing a lot more of these encounters every single week. Normally, we'd be seeing very few, maybe one or two, three or four, maybe a month. 
But when we add on these gangs that share a border with a land border with us, now we're getting into like 17, 18, 19 a week encounters. Okay, no big deal. So when these encounters come in and I would go through every single one, you would see patterns over time. And I was trying to keep record of them as far as like what we're seeing them for. Every now and then you would see a USCIS application. So the person's applying for asylum or a person's applying for like a work benefit, okay? Most times it was like, they're getting arrested by a cop or pulled over for a DUI. Uh, maybe there's a prison release. And every now and then we'd have some other travel records as far as them, you know, as far as their international travel. Cool. Well, then that's going on for quite a while. And this time now the watch list is approaching about 40,000. This is really important to understand too. So I referenced the terrorist reading database. This thing has no limit. There's no ceiling on this thing. So it goes well over a million people on this thing. The talk working group, uh, that, that talk program watch list, this thing's capped at 40,000. So it's a very, very microcosm of the whole population of transnational organized criminals. So in February, 2021, uh, an encounter comes across my desk as, as an email. And it says, uh, reason for encounter, 6 USC 279 UAC sponsor. No idea what that even means. And I, I'm not gonna lie to you. I kind of was like, all right, well, write that down. Cool. Keep on working, right? A month later, I see it again. And that was the part where I was like, okay, I saw that one previously. What was that again? So I copy and paste it. I look at my inbox, which has all the records going back to 2015, 16. And only two records showed up. The one from that day and the one from February, 2021. So now I'm like, okay, this is weird. I've never seen this before. Now I see two of them. I'm curious what this thing is. So I Google that code because I have no idea what it means. And it's short for 679, six, um, USC being US code 279, Unaccompanied Alien Children Sponsor. And I have no idea what this program is because USCIS does not work the Unaccompanied Children like program. So I was like, that's weird. Why would this person try to become a sponsor? It makes no sense to me. I don't know. Well, there's two of them. I have no idea. The next month, March, or sorry, in uh, April, um, we see our third one come across. So that's now three and three months, and it's about one every four weeks. So that to me was like, okay, well, this looks like it's starting to become something if we're seeing it almost regularly. Now, don't forget the that microcosm of 40,000 watch list. This is very, very small considering at this time in 2021, if we all recall, that border surge going on. There's like about a quarter million crossings per month. So if you're only bouncing off a list of 40,000, there's a quarter million, but I'm still seeing one of these every four weeks for you know to get a child. That to me kind of piqued my interest. So I asked around work and I was like, does anybody know what this thing is? Has anybody ever heard of this or worked with, you March. know, on a company in uh, April? Um, and what happened then? Um, no one responded really saying like, yeah, it's not our job. We don't really work with this role. So, you know, good luck somewhere else. So I reached out to other DHS partners, you know, CBP, ICE, uh, a guy I know, Border Patrol. And I just hit him up saying like, hey, do you guys have any idea about this program are you guys like monitoring these things like these are ms13 members like we know the dude's name is fingerprints and you know all that kind of stuff he's trying to get a child like is anybody tracking this thing so <laughs> nope no one's tracking it okay so now i reach out to other parts of the talk working group so there's doj there's a terrorist screening center there's fbi there's department of labor and i'm reaching out to them asking like is anybody is anybody following this thing like please someone tell me and nobody was so at this point in time, I reached out to Veritas showing them like, hey guys, like there's something going on now and I'm still seeing one every four weeks. And so by the time I sat down with them in uh, July, 2021, there was a total of eight dudes on this watch list trying to get a child. And the thing that really piqued my interest was it wasn't like just one population. So it was predominantly dudes. There were seven guys and one woman. 
Um, but they came from MS-13, 18th Street Gang, and a Balkan organized crime organization, which means the countries they came from was like El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, and Romania. So it's not like it's one geographic thing going on. Like there's a lot of gangs out there trying to get kids. What is going on? Why is this happening? Doesn't make sense. And when you see the actual encounter information of the dudes trying to get like these kids, these are not fathers. These are not their children. These were guys in like their low twenties, mid twenties trying to get a child. So it's pretty obvious what's going on when you see what these gangs do. They operate in sex trafficking as a prime mechanism for what they do in the country. So by the time Project Veritas published the video in August, 2021, there was a ninth dude that got on, you know, that tried getting a child. And then um, I did that interview like undercover, under shadows, like no one knew who I was, not even the government knew who I was. Um, so make sure you feel safe, people. There's there's ways that you can be protected when you do these things. Uh, Work didn't know who I was until I went public about something else, which I'm not going to talk about. It's a whole different story. But um, by the time that happened, there was a total of 12 talk aliens trying to get a child in, what was that, nine months. And so that to me shows like, not only is it a problem, it's a progressive problem. And it kind of kept growing. So the reason why I sat down with uh, Veritas was two reasons. So it's like one, this is a, well, a few things, but the primary thing is like, we're talking about children right now. This is not okay. This is not a good thing. And the government doesn't have control. The, uh, the two people I was trying to notify though, one was the American public because they should know what's happening in their own country with their own laws. But the other thing I wanted to do was literally like throw a flag in the air to see if anybody out there is seeing what I'm seeing. Because if if we're not seeing it on the intel side, if we're not seeing it within this watch, you know, community, someone has to be there maybe that's actually seeing this thing happening on the ground. Tara, who's a great human being, luckily was that angel of a person that saw something and was able to do something about that. Um, so yeah, that's my story. That's who I am. Thank you, Aaron. Appreciate that. Um, how terrifying is that? Like, <laughs> and no one else said anything, Aaron, at the office. I mean, it was basically well, just you. So the terrifying part, like I definitely, like I definitely felt something. It, I thought I was scared, and I kind of was. But when I did something, I thought I was scared. But it was really more of like, no. I look back on, I'm like, I wasn't feeling fear there. I was mm -hmm. feeling like this is new. When I was seeing it happen, though. When I'm seeing these records and like we know everything about these people, um, I thought I felt disgusted and I felt just like desperate. I'm like, come on, like there, we we these things are almost life feet. It's like we know where the dude's at. Like we can do something about this, but the way we mechanize ourselves, we don't do anything at all because we're we're unable to. So the system answer alone is like it's not going to happen without major change. But um, as far as the uh, the other part of that though, which is does anybody else know what's going on? So. Right before I sat down with Veritas, I read through this thing called a collection primer. And this is a document put out by uh, Homeland Security um, INA, which is Intelligence and Analysis. And this is like our Intel community uh, node of DHS. So they were actually attached to one of the 17 agencies of the intelligence community. And they wrote this whole thing about like, hey, this is, this is our collection primer on international, uh, transnational organized criminal organizations. And it's like, okay, cool. So like, what should we be looking for? Because the intelligence cycle and the intelligence operation of the US intelligence community is very structured. It's not just a bunch of people like, you know, being nerds and like, hey, there's problems. No, it's very, very structured. Um, it's, it's very top down, but there's very, um, it's very strong also like input bottom up. So on the way down, you have leadership from like the executive branch and they say, we wanna know about these missions and we wanna know about these countries and what they do, blah, 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 blah. Well, one of those missions 
it would be transnational organized crime. And so then they've got questions being like, you know, okay, well, who's doing it? Who are the gangs? Who are the people in the gangs? Where are they coming from? What are they doing? How are they doing it? Inside of that, this is called the National Intelligence Party Framework or the NIPF. Inside of that, there's questions in there saying like, how are they using the immigration system? And that's when we're able to go like, yeah, they're doing it by, you know, basically abusing the asylum process for defensive asylum. But on top of that, they're, they're for some odd reason, they're trying to get children as well by this, by these means. Um, but inside this collection primer, there is zero mention about child trafficking. They talk about gun smuggling. They talk about drug proliferation. They talk about, you know, um, other gang activities, basically, but they don't talk about child trafficking. And that to me blew my mind. I'm like, okay, in, in every single one of these encounter, you know, notices, it says like a write-up about the gang. It says blah, 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 gang is known for doing yacht, 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 child trafficking. And it's like, okay. Like, if we're knowing this in this level, why isn't DHS, INA looking at it from a collection standpoint for intelligence information? And it's like, okay, they don't want to. So when I saw that, that was like, I, I have, like, I'm out of options. Like, I have to do this because there's nothing else to do. Um, and luckily, again, I think it was beneficial. I lost my job in the process, but whatever. But Tara sees it. Tara's down there and she watches the video and this is confirming her suspicion. But I'll let it, Tara stories Tara. So she does a better job of saying, anyways. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. And Aaron, we should have said uh, thank you for your service, man. He was uh, a Marine. Yes. So we thank you for that. And see, it took a Marine to step out and do something brave, right? They're the first ones in. Yes. We appreciate you, Aaron. Okay, Tara. So, yeah, let's take the story. Uh, Aaron hands the baton off to you. Let's Let's hear your side of it now. Okay, well, what is so great is to have Deb White here on this call because Deb was the angel who saw Aaron's disclosure. Deb was the one who said, you must see this and sent it to me. So we were on the site. She saw it first. She sent it to me. And then we circulated around the site. So picture this, all right? We're sitting there in Pomona. For those of you who don't know my story, uh, the Biden administration knew they had a border crisis at the beginning of 2021. So much so that they made the first agency-wide call for all federal employees to mobilize. That's leave your agency and deploy to another agency. We were called to HHS for the border crisis. And the crisis was to take these children unaccompanied children from nations who were coming to our country and take them into the care of HHS, then send them to sponsors throughout the entire United States. And the government was footing the bill to bring the children into care, to then process them, and then to fly them or bus them to sponsors here in the United States. So, we had no idea, at least I had no idea, that one child had ever been trafficked through this program. I did not understand how prolific child sex trafficking is. I did not understand that it was a multi-billion dollar program that people view children as commodities. It is still stunning to me. It is still one of the most horrible revelations that people view children this way. And so 
I volunteered, you know, my husband is from El Salvador, so I speak Spanish and I thought, wow, I could be that welcoming face, you know, with the kids. And um, I didn't know that I was going to end up working in case management. And it only took us, I think it was less than two weeks in case management to see children in crisis, to see that the stories of the children were not matching the stories of the sponsor. And I'm not ashamed to say, you know, I'm, I'm, my heart was so broken and I was crying and other people there were crying. The case managers were in panic and we're trying to figure out what's really going on here. Where are these children going? What's happening? And um, we discovered that people were indeed trafficking these kids. And it's a horrible thing to understand. Traffickers are profiting. Smugglers are profiting, right? They're bringing the children here. They're delivering to people here who are profiting off of the lives of the children. They're putting them to work in labor, in sex, and worse. The government is funding contractors and NGOs who are profiting off of the lives of the children. And so who is going to stand up and be the voice for these kids? Fortunately, Aaron was one of those voices. And when he stood up, and when Deb saw it and sent it to me, we started circulating it around the site. And we said, look, we know they're trafficking the kids, but now we understand that it's transnational organized crime. This is, we, we really need to find out. And in less than two weeks from the time I saw that video, the first case manager came forward and said, Tara, I have this weird feeling. The sponsor who I'm talking to keeps talking about gangs. And she was an MS-13 operator. So I just, I'm so thankful to Aaron for coming forward that when he tossed the red flag, right, that Deb saw it, which allowed me to see it, which allowed us to circulate it around the site and it allowed other people to come forward. And so now our mission is to try to rescue the kids. I never imagined, I never imagined that I would be in a fight against people who are profiting off of the lives of children. And so if you were not aware, um, I, I would recommend seeing Sound of Freedom so that you can see exactly how it happens. But children uh, are lured. Trafficking is force, fraud, or coercion. So you have to, it has to be one of those things. They're lured here. They're lured away from their parents. Sometimes it's the parents who are deceived. Um, in Sound of Freedom, it's Miss Cartagena. She is a beauty queen. And she's like, oh, let me take pictures of your kids. Maybe our children could be famous too. And then while they're on the photo shoot, you know, they tell their parents to come back and then they just take the kids. They're gone. So, you know, a parent might take their child to a photo shoot and never see their child again. And then they're living in a very bad situation for many, many years. So um, I never imagined that I would be in this fight. But I'm so thankful that Aaron, you know, told the truth. And that's what we're, we're asking people to do now is to come forward. We need truth tellers who are working on cases because I know right now there are case managers who are looking at cases going, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't make sense to me. Uh, the sponsor or the foster parent or whatever it is. They're not telling the same story. Something is not making sense here. Maybe you're an investigator. Whatever it is, if you're seeing things that don't make sense to you on your job, it's, it's 
your duty to tell the truth. That's all we're asking people to do is to step forward, tell the truth, because these are children's lives on the line. And if we don't get to them fast enough, as a law enforcement officer I was talking to recently said, if we don't get to them soon, they won't, they won't be here. You know, a child who's trafficked, especially sex trafficked, their, their life expectancy can be two to five years. Understand there are people who sell children multiple times a day, every day for weeks and then months and then years on end until they're, they're no longer useful to them. And so we need to get to these kids quick. And so we need you. So I'm asking anybody, please come forward. I think the email is uh, running, going to be running along the bottom there. Please reach out and be brave. And as they say, as James O'Keefe and Project Veritas say, be brave and do something. So with that, I'm going to pass it back. And thank you all for letting me tell my story about government-sponsored, taxpayer-funded child trafficking. Thank you so much, Tara. You just took the words out of my mouth. I was going to ask the audience a rhetorical question. Guess who's paying for it, folks? Yep. That would be the U.S. citizen, as always. So we are essentially taxpayer-funded trafficking. Like, it's, it's all, you can't even make this stuff up. Like, it, if, you had to, if I would have went back in a time machine just 20 years ago and said that the U.S. taxpayer in 20 years is going to be funding human trafficking, I would have said, you're nuts. I knew we were corrupt 20 years ago, but I would have never thought, well, we'd be involved in something so heinous. And it's just disgusting. It has to end. And just like Tara said, we need you to come out, please. We are begging you. We need you. This is what ends it. People bravely coming out of the systems talking about it will end this nonsense. We can end it on our watch. We cannot let it go another day. I mean, I don't know what the, the, the exact stats are. I mean, uh, they threw a couple out here, but it, it's terrifying what's going on. It's, it's the level of insanity that is involved in this. And, and it's, it's not like they don't know, folks. Our government knows this is going on. Later on, Sylvia is going to talk about what's going on in all 50 states and how it's funding budgets through Title IV funding. We've talked about it on other shows here. But see, it doesn't matter whether it's the foster care system, an adoption agency, and I hate to say it, even some of the churches, yes, some of the churches, I said it, uh, I'm a Christian, we're all Christians here, but I'm telling you right now, the church is heavily involved in this, the deep state church, we call it. Um, and then you've got the federal agencies and state agencies involved. So with that, I'm going to pass it over to Deborah. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much again for coming on, and we really appreciate you. Thank you so much, Gino. Yeah, um, I really appreciate, you know, just all of you, um, especially Aaron. I mean, he really was the catalyst that got us um, energized really about, hey, you know, we we can tell our story and um, there are people that are in the same boat as us and the truth needs to come out. So I, I thank you, Aaron. I thank you, Tara. Tara is my sister in arms. We worked together in Pomona, California. I mean, we were there from the beginning. So I just want to say that, yes, I am a federal employee and um, I, uh, my, my views you know, do not uh, speak for the agency that I work for. But as Tara said, we, there was an all call to, to government to help with the border crisis. So 
I am a native Spanish speaker and uh, I had some skills in project management, uh, acquisition and contracting. So that's my background for the federal government um, for about probably the past 15 years. Uh, and anyhow, so I met Tara when we went to Texas together um, to the operations center there. Um, and then we got our orders to deploy to Pomona, California uh, to support the HHS uh, mission border crisis uh, with unaccompanied children. Um, Tara is like one of the sweetest, um, purest people I know, honestly, like she is so sweet and so genuine and so real. And she honestly believed that, you know, we would get there and we would help, you know, children. And like she would say, you know, just do puzzles and, you know, just be a welcoming face. I went there not necessarily thinking that. I figured that, yeah, there's probably pe bad people out there that are going to exploit this kind of system when there's thousands of children flooding the border, you know, and there's probably some crazy stuff going on. But I never imagined that I would be part of discovering the trafficking that was actually going on through our government. So as Tara said, you know, government funded uh, taxpayer, I'm sorry, taxpayer funded, government sponsored child trafficking. I mean, and and as you said, Gino, I would have never in a million years, you know, imagined, you know, 20 years ago, like you said, there's crazy things going on, but not to the level that we're seeing it today. Um, and kind of how to piggyback off what Aaron said, the fact that we're seeing it, we're reporting it, but it feels like it's falling on deaf ears or it is falling on deaf ears because um, our story, at least for me and Tara, was we began working in the pods, taking care of the kids for a couple of weeks. We got pulled into case management where they needed some help um, because I can only describe that initial experience and, and Tara can testify to this. It was like the, the floor of like the Wall Street stock exchange or something, I guess, before computers. You've got papers flying. People didn't know what to do, where to go, what the process was. The case managers were brand new that I mean that was kind of the system that HHS used they they'll set up you know in an area for maybe six months hire a whole bunch of people that don't really know what's going on but you know Tara and I joked we're like if they have a pulse you know they're in you know they qualify so they get you know on average 18 to, to 20 something year old young adults to watch over the children that don't really have experience or know how to ask the right questions about you know, abuse or background or if they're okay. I mean, really, they're just babysitters. Uh, and then the case in the case management room where Tara and I were working, there were case managers, most of them fresh out of college. This was their first job for some of them. They would have mass hiring events at the hotel next to us at the uh, Pomona Fairplex area. Uh, just massive hiring events um, to bring in new case managers to handle the massive load of children that we were getting, you know, on a daily basis. So that was kind of their operating model. Again, just set up for a few months somewhere, hire a whole bunch of people that aren't really experienced in what um, case management is, uh, and then not even train those people. There was a, there's a contractor, I think it's, um, Tara, please correct me if I'm wrong. It's, I think it's General Dynamics that came in to do what was really a ridiculous training, um, just very high level to say, hey, these are some of the HHS ORR policies, you know, that y'all need to follow. Here are field guidances that have been put out. Um, you know, you guys need to do your due diligence, make sure the child gets, you know, to their sponsor quickly. Um, want to get them there, you know, within 15 days. We don't want to delay them from the reunification. 
Um, and that was really it. And so that's why you had the massive chaos, it seemed like system by design, chaos um, in the HHS ORR case management room. So think of an operation, it's, it's a huge ballroom. I think it's two ballrooms that were um, connected, you know, just separated by a divider. They had it opened up and we had hundreds of tables um, multiple case managers sitting at those tables trying to process children as quickly as they possibly could without any real training or understanding what questions to ask these children to really find out um, if they actually had a valid relationship with the sponsor that they were going to. Um, many of the children, like through the course of helping and assisting interview um, these children, we figured out that these kids really didn't know the sponsors they were going to in many cases. Um, the first case that I got that really broke the process where we figured out that this was happening um, was a case of these two children, brother and sister, Juana and Antonio, going to um, a home in Bonita Springs, Florida. And that the sponsor that they were going to was, um, a gentleman who we now know was doing trafficking, uh, having a trafficking ring in Huehuetenago, Guatemala. And so when this case came to me and I worked with the case manager to figure out what was going on, why is this child that she's interviewing, Antonio, Antonio had been in a psych ward for six days and then came back to us at the HHS um, site, wanted to know why this child was so just unnerved. I mean, he just said, I've got to get to my sponsor. I, you know, it's taking too long. His sister, the same thing. And so, you know, we could see something was wrong. And so I helped the case manager interview them separately to see what they would say to see if their stories even matched, you know, um, they didn't, they were saying, you know, different things about the sponsor that they were going to. And um, eventually through um, a second interview with Antonio, I was able to uncover, um, because he admitted to me that, you know, he was being, he was being brought here for work and to pay back a debt. Otherwise they were going to kill his father back in Guatemala. And that the man that, um, arranged for him and his sister to come to America was a very powerful man in Huehuetenago, Guatemala, and in the town that they were in. He is apparently the richest man in the area. So, of course, I looked into it more, and then I queried the system that we use, the, the UC portal there at HHS, and um, figured out that this, this person was actually, had multiple children at multiple locations attached to his name and was red flagged in the system already multiple times and we were continuing to send children to them. And I think it was around at that time, there was maybe 16 children mm -hmm. that had already been delivered to him or someone he was associated with at an address that he was associated with. And so it was kind of a pyramid, um, like a pyramid that he created. So he'd basically bring in kids. And I think it was since 2015, he'd bring in a 16 or 17 year old, um, and then once they turned 18 or 19 years old, those now adults would then request additional children. Um, Tara and I then continued to do some research and figured out that most of these homes were being held by a trust. So they weren't actually owned by a person per se, they were owned under this trust. Uh, so 
my, I mean, I could take the story in so many different directions. You know, I am an acquisition contracting professional. So uh, I remember going to the command center and saying, hey, I can help you guys. You know, I'm certified. I have certified in contracting project management and I can help you, you know, with this contract because they kept complaining about the contractor, you know, not performing. And so the answer that I got from a lady in the command center was stop asking for the contract. You're not going to get it and stop asking. So they didn't really want to, they didn't really want someone with contracting expertise actually looking at the contract. Um, that, that was the bottom line. Um, so yeah, that, that's my story. But as, as we, we uncovered the first case of trafficking, it then became so much easier for us to query the system and figure out that this was happening over and over again. And that's how we have so many cases that we reported up uh, and Tara did a phenomenal job of doing that, just um, creating PowerPoints and sounding the alarm about all these children that were being placed into these potentially potential trafficking situations or actual trafficking situations. Um, the girls, or sorry, the women that were in the room doing the case management work were untrained and unexpected and just new at their jobs. And so they came to us desperately looking for help. And so Tara and I talked about the best way we can help these women to, to uncover more of these horrific things that are happening is if we offer them training. So on our own created PowerPoints and training slides and grabbed them like 15, 20 at a time into a conference room and just went through, um, you know, what, what trafficking looks like, what questions to ask, um, how to dig deeper because the questions that were on a standard sheet that we were supposed to ask the kids were ridiculous. You wouldn't uncover anything in that way. Um, so anyways, that's what we did, went through the training, um, made sure that all of the girls, you know, knew how to ask the right questions. And we just continued to uncover more and more and more and we reported up. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel like the reporting was getting us anywhere, you know, and, and Tara can attest to this, you know, I got super frustrated, you know, and even told her, you know, what good is this reporting doing? They're not doing anything about it. You know, um, she continued, you know, faithfully sending the emails and making sure that, you know, it got to um, the right sources because initially we were given a, a office for trafficking in persons email that we were to send these cases to. Well, we found out that that was just an internal email within HHS. So it was just HHS reporting to HHS internally. Uh, and I believe the OTIP email is also, uh, it was run by the, the general dynamic contractor as well. Uh, so I, I got fed up and I contacted the FBI. And so that was <laughs> I believe late June and again, early July, contacted the FBI and um, talked with a couple of special agents and let them know what was going on and let them know that I was there to su support any other, um, I'm sorry, supply any other information that they needed at that point to help with the investigation. I remember even getting frustrated with the FBI because one of the agents said to me, well, has a child actually said I'm being held against my will? And I said, well, of course not. They, they don't call me to tell me that after they've left. We can't find them after they've left. We've tried to do, you know, the 30 day calls. We didn't even wait 30 days. Um, we, we would call the next day or within a week to make sure that the child was okay. Sometimes we'd get disconnected phone numbers. Sometimes we'd get a response from the sponsor. Well, 
I, I just was supposed to pick them up from the airport. I, I took the kids somewhere else. Like they just paid me some money to pick them up from the airport, um, that kind of thing. So I said, obviously we, we do not hear back from the children that they're being held against their will. We can't find them once they're gone. So when people ask me, you know, what, what do I hope to gain from, you know, talking about this issue publicly? Um, I mean, obviously like there's, there's a lot that I have to lose, but the most important thing is to tell the truth so that other people that are involved in seeing this will come forward and start a movement that will get the government to, or I'm sorry, get Congress to take action and stop funding this program. It's a failed program. If we can't protect children, we have failed desperately and, and we can't, we know now that we cannot protect these children through this program. This is not the first time HHS has done this. This is not their first rodeo. They have been doing this for years and years and years, and it is a failed program. Why would the American people continue to pay their hard earned dollars towards a program that has failed miserably? So yep. I, I, I want change. I would love for Congress to, just defund this program and i would love for the children to be found because at the end of the day they're the victims and they're the ones that need to be found they're the ones that are living in horrid conditions right now and so i just want the children found whatever it takes well that's a lot to swallow right there um, i can tell you if if you can't see it yet this is a system designed to fail to fail children to fail families in in Gosh, everything you talked about, Deborah. if I didn't know you were talking about HHS, I would have thought you were talking about the family court and foster care system and adoption. I mean, it's the same, you know, routine. They have this like playbook that they use over and over again. And it's funded by us in both systems. And the fact that you were saying the case managers are hired and they have zero experience or very little experience tells me all I need to know. They know that. I mean, you can't go get a job at Burger King, most people, without a little bit of experience if you're trying to get some kind of, you know, middle management job or something there. And yet the most vulnerable among us don't, they don't deserve to have somebody with experience and understand how to handle these, these children and, and the different abuses they've had coming across that long journey to get across the border. And, and you can't tell me HHS doesn't know about the cartels and everything that's going on with the drug trafficking and how they're using children and doing very heinous things. I, I don't even want to go into the graphic nature of some of the things they do with the children and the drugs. But we, if you go back, we had an episode, oh, it's probably three, four months ago now, uh, Christy Hutcherson was on. She was a filmmaker and she was down in, uh, I believe it was Arizona. And she, and she hired her own crew of uh, former Marines, Navy SEALs. Uh, I mean, she paid out of her own pocket. She had a big team of cameramen and, and video equipment. And they went down there and they just started scoping the scene out. And what she discovered was absolutely horrific. And she kept um, filming one particular area that was catching her eye because she thought something was very suspicious about it. And what it was was a hidden tunnel that our own government didn't even know about. So her and her camera crew and a, and a few Navy SEALs and, and Marines found a tunnel that they were trafficking children and drugs through. And she says what, what they discovered was just absolutely sickening. Um, and if you don't think that's going on tenfold, maybe even a hundredfold, you're very naive to what's going on. And, and I know I'm just, I'm kind of off the cuff here. I'm not talking to the audience in direct. I'm just saying the general public doesn't even know this is going on. And that's why the whistleblowers are so important at this critical time. 
At this juncture in time, we need you to come forward and speak. Uh, Deborah, that was fantastic. That was, I mean, the details were outstanding. It was very succinct. Thank you so much for that. We appreciate you. Um, I want to, I'm going to throw it over to Sylvian. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Aaron. Yep. Can I ask, uh, Deb a few questions just really quick? Yeah, sure. All right. So Deborah, um, you, you're explaining the entire process, right? How many like jobs were in that information flow from like case managers, you know, workers, but how many, like what, seven, eight different kinds of jobs you think? Yeah, definitely. Yes. From, okay. from medical to the people in the pods, to the case managers, to the coordinators that are supposed to approve before the final approval. Yes. Yeah, at least. Okay. Yeah. And then on the, on the outskirts of it, the oversight of it, there's even like probably three, four, five more layers of jobs. One of them being FBI agents. And the best they could do was, but have these kids self-reported it. That's why all those other people that are inside that pipeline are so important to talk because if, if that's the best, of the best, and that's their best that they're giving, it, it shows you how much more you're actually needed because people like you, I'm sure a lot of others see it going on. And I just hope that it resonates and hope people watching this, well, and if you have a best friend that works inside the system, it's like, dude, send them this thing, talk to them. This is what, you know, that website, the email address for rescue fosters, that's what it's there for. So I just wanted to really drive that point home of just insane. I'm swearing over here, by the way, quietly. So I'm miles <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Uh, no, you bring up a great point with the FBI. I was going to touch on that too. The fact that they would say, are the children saying anything? I mean, they don't even tell you if they stole a cookie out of the cookie jar. And they're, I mean, yeah. how ridiculous is that? The fact that a grown adult actually had those words come out of their mouth is embarrassing. Right. Our, right. I mean, every, that's how I felt. I mean, I, <sighs> I just thought it was ridiculous. I said, you know, of, of course they're not self-reporting. <laughs> like, you know, I, I would call law enforcement immediately to go pick them up if that were the case. Um, but no, you know, and yeah, it was just, it was just shocking. But by that time I had seen so much that I just wasn't shocked by anything. You know, I, I just thought, okay, this is just, you know, deliberate. This is, they know about it. It's, mm -hmm. you know, you know, but I also thought at the same time, like, you know, though that was a ridiculous comment, but I thought maybe their hands are tied. Maybe they can't do anything. I don't know. I just, I don't know. This is the first time that I've been exposed to this. I never in my life thought in my government career that this was something that I would be exposed to. Um, you know, I was distraught and sickened and, you know, went to my hotel room every night, you know, to, to pray and just say, Hey, there, you know, there has to be, um, justice, you know, there has to be something, you know, and I just, I, I'm thankful for my faith because had I not had my faith, I don't think I would have been able to get through it. Um, cause Tara can attest to that. We would pray together and just ask God for strength, you know, to get through each day because every day, I mean, we both felt like, my gosh, like, why are we still here? Like how much more can we take? Um, you know, nothing's being done and, we would just continue on. We said, this place is so dark. We have to stay here. If nothing else, just to be a light in a dark place, you know, we have to be here to, you know, record and report, you know, as appropriate. And so that's what, that's what we did. That's what we made our mission was to try to save as many kids as we possibly could and document. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I, I just want to say one thing that's really important, you know, sometimes people say, wow, you know, to be a whistleblower, you have to be so courageous. You have to do this. You know, I really want people to know that 
I cried a lot of tears. You know, thank God Deb was there to be a support. You know, she was there that I had somebody with me, but I cried a lot of tears. There were days that I was shaking. You know, there were days that I was scared. I mean, I don't want anyone to think that coming forward to blow the whistle is going to be just like, woohoo, this is the best thing ever. No, nobody ever wants to be uh, the whistleblower. Um, People, you know, there's two camps, whistleblowers are traitors, but whistleblowers are truth tellers, right? And so I just, I just want people to know that if you have a truth to tell that you should tell it because there's no government job, state job, no, no medical degree that is, is going to ease your mind and allow you to sleep at night, knowing what you know, seeing what you've seen, hearing what you've heard without telling the truth. And so whatever God brings you to, he will get you through. And I'm just thankful that he, you know, mobilized Deb and I together. That's, that was a miracle, but you don't have to be, um, you know, this confident person to tell the truth. I really want, wanted people to know that. Yeah. I wasn't Johnny Rambo. I was disgusted. I hated myself at times. I was desperate. It's like, it was all those negative emotions, but it's like, okay, well, there's something I can do that at least. So yeah, I completely resonate with what you guys felt. And I'm sure Sylvia does too. You know, um, I just, oh, sorry, go ahead, Sylvia. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, you know, Deborah, you brought up a point where, you know, you kind of see it every day and it, it you can get kind of numb to it. I mean, just like in any other, you know, work related job, you just do it every day and you're just doing your job, the nine to five get your paycheck, go home. Um, but you guys didn't get desensitized to it. You you saw it every day and you're like, you were more and more sickened by it that it moved you to action. And I'm hoping there's others watching this that are moved by your raw emotions and what your gut was telling you and most of all, what God was telling you to do. There has to be others out there that you see it day in, day out. And you're thinking to yourself, man, is there something I can do? And there is something you can do. Uh, we have the scroll across the bottom of the screen here. Please reach out to Sylvia at rescuetofosters.org. You can drop an email there. You can be anonymous. Um, you don't have to come on screen. You can drop an email with just, you know, your story and what happened and what industry you're in. Uh, whether you're a federal agency, state agency, or working in the, uh, you know, with the child services, welfare system. It doesn't matter. We just need you. We need voices because our goal is to change the entire system everything top to bottom it has to change it cannot continue they're tearing the family apart and it's intentional the reason it's they're doing this is to destroy the country from within they can't do it from without they're doing it from within and how do you do that you tear the family apart you tell them there's no god you become a secular society and before you know it you're in communist russia or you're in china or you're in north korea we don't want that folks we have to fight it. Now's the time. We cannot sit back and do nothing. We need to put them on their heels. They need to be scared of us. They're using our money, our hard-earned money, to fund this nonsense. Okay, there's my uh, tirade for the night. I'm sorry. I, 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 every now and then, I just got to let that out. Otherwise, I'm going to blow up. So I, <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> um, okay, Sylvia, let's hear your story. Now, I know Sylvia's story, and I know everybody else has heard it before. But Sylvia's story is the other side of this. Okay, this is the welfare side of it. So uh, go ahead, Sylvia. 
Well, I just want to say to Deborah and Tara, I know that dark place that you're talking about. Um, that was the first time I really experienced it was working in the foster system and working in the group home. Um, so I worked at Elts A More group home and it is dark. It's really dark. And and what when I went into the system, I I assumed that we were taking kids from abused homes and placing them in non-abused homes, right? And what I discovered in the group home, that was the first time I discovered uh, the U.S. had a sex trafficking issue. Um, and uh, it was the children, you know, like you like you said, you, it's the children that are coming to you and, and they don't feel safe in this place. This is not a safe place. It's not a safe place for children. Uh, my story is really long, so I'll give the short version of it because I really want to focus on uh, caseworkers to know what to look for in uh, the system, because the thing is, is I, I knew I did not know what to look for. Uh, and the reason I didn't is because the way that they do it is very, manip very manipulative. So basically, when I would have uh, a child come in, I would receive a child and I would receive a chart. That chart is what you go by. So it already has the narrative. It has the narrative of the family. And all the families that I, the charts that I had, the family was horrible. You know, you read the story and you're like, oh my God, this parent is awful. They should not have this child. Then you read the story of the child and the it's the same way with the child. The child is, is all, all this horrible kid who is defiant, who uh, runs away, who is, uh, who talks back, who does not uh, stay at school, who has tantrums, uh, can't sleep, can't, you know, it's just a horrible child. So you just have these two things and you don't meet the biological family. I would never meet the biological family. Sometimes I probably met like one or two, you know, they try to keep that separate. Um, but um, what I was discovering was, uh, okay, so there's different things that you can look for. One, basically, look at the chart and look at the child. You can ask, usually the child will tell you their story and you can compare and, and determine if it adds up or not. Uh, the other thing was we were encouraged to maintain, maintain kids in care. So basically we were encouraged to, to keep a kid in a home no matter what. If the kid was defiant, you get that child whatever you need. If it a behavior aid, psychotropic medication, uh, you just get whatever that needs to stay in that home. Um, and we had quotas. So I don't know if we spoke to, I don't even know if I've told you this, Tara, but we had quotas and uh, we had goals. So they would say like, we have 80 kids and we want a hundred kids. And we were told that if we had any kids that were reunited with a family or adopted that we had to bring in more kids. And if we didn't bring in those kids, we would be fired. So um, I, I had a huge issue with that. Um, so I was very vocal about it. And I even questioned, how do you bring these kids in? If I go grab a kid on the sidewalk and I bring it in, it's not my kid. It's not my caseload. How do I get this kid? So they would tell us that we would have to call around to different caseworkers and tell them that we had space available at our facility, which was one side of group home, the other side of foster home, 
foster homes. Okay, quotas are not okay. Caseworkers, don't be okay with this. Speak up. And then the other thing was the, the bullying. So we were constantly bullied, harassed. Um, if we did speak up, we were I was written up. I was put on leave twice. I was told that I was, um, when I refused to falsify documents on an incident, I was told that I was hallucinating, I was burned out and I needed to take time off. And I was put on leave for three days. So there, I was just constantly getting beat up basically. So I started researching um, and I actually started researching on social media and I just typed in Twitter um, CPS and all of these parents started coming up that were uh, fighting for their kids. And the caseworkers were falsifying documents. They were forging signatures. They were lying under oath. Uh, and, and these kids, like these parents hadn't seen their kids in five, six, seven years. So this is another thing that we've learned in the system. So, and this is something that people need to really understand what is going on in the system. And I feel like Gino has something to say. I was, I'm still, the quotas always gets me. I mean, we're talking about children. We're not talking about parts made in a factory or, you know, producing cars or something where you need quotas and you got to meet the quotas to get paid. I, I get it. These are children. What in the world do we need to meet quotas for, for human beings? I mean, that alone can, should blow your mind. You should be like, wait a minute, what? Why did they want a certain number of kids? I thought they were trying to, they were shooting for reunification with the parent. Or the parents, right? The biological family, but that's not the case, is it, Sylvia? No, it's not, and and that's the other thing. Uh, like you're a caseworker, work your caseload, like do the plan, stop railroading parents. That uh, that's something else that caseworkers do. And when I say railroad, that means stall the plan. You don't. You're supposed to help them. You're supposed to help them reunite. You're not supposed to hinder them. Uh, so if your director or supervisor is telling you to stall on the plan, um, the thing is, is when a, uh, when a child comes into care, you have 15 months to complete the plan. If you don't complete the case plan within 15 months, the child goes up for adoption and the, uh, the state receives adoption money. So caseworkers will stall the plan. Stop doing that. Uh, the other thing is the turnover. Yes, Aaron. I'm sorry, I said, cause you said the money. Um, the state receives some money. Does anybody else receive money? Like the homes themselves? Yes, yeah, so the, the foster parents receive money and it goes by the state. Um, so depending on your state, from what I understand, it's anywhere from six to 14,000 per child. So it's almost like there's an incentive for them to get that quota. Yes, there's there's definitely an incentive for adoption and a child can be adopted more than once. So this is literally every single thing that Tara has told me about the HHS. It's like the it's the same exact like it's so parallel. I just I mm -hmm. I know Aaron Aaron when I, when I saw Tara on uh, Red Pill 78 show. That was about I don't know, maybe 7 8 months ago. I had to call in. I said, "Oh my gosh, everything she is saying is identical to what's going on." In the welfare system like i it was like 
hand and glove, right? And I remember talking to her for the first time on his show, and I was just like, <laughs> I don't know, I was probably like all just like crazy that night talking to you, but I was like, we need to talk because the same thing is going on in another system. And and you said you had kind of heard about it, you know, peripherally, but um, you didn't know the uh, the inner workings of it. So when we met, I was we were just like, wow, okay, we really need to collaborate and do something. Yeah, and Gino, it was stunning to me to hear that the same thing is going on, right, with child, you know, in the other branch. So with CPS and foster care and all of that. And interestingly, right, that all falls under HHS. And so I, you know, I would just say, follow the money. HHS, and anybody can do this. So I encourage mm -hmm. all of your listeners to go to usaspending.gov, usaspending.gov. You can see that HHS is a 2.8 trillion okay that's with a t a 2.8 trillion dollar enterprise it receives over 20 percent of the u.s budget so that means of all the tax dollars you're sending in 20 percent of your money is going to fund hhs and their programs which from what i've seen thus far i have zero confidence in and if i was giving them a grade they get an f they get an F for, for failure. They get an F for their performance measures. Who makes the performance, like with the unaccompanied children program, speed over safety? Let's just see how fast we can get rid of these kids. That's their performance measure. And yet with the foster care system, it's how long can we delay the process so that we can get more money? It's Let's the same quotas. thing, you know, exactly. It's, it's incentives. It's it's false incentives and performance measures, and they need great people like Deb, who's a who's a great project manager, to say, "Hey, let's talk about what these performance measures should be. Let's get some contractors here who actually know about this business, and let's give you know, let's fund people who actually care about child welfare and child advocacy." Because I haven't seen any yet at HHS. Right. And what's interesting, Tara, to piggyback off of that is as much as HHS complained about how the contractor was failing at the site, they didn't do anything to remedy it. And to my understanding, they in the CPARS, right, and that's the contractor performance uh, assessment rating system for contractors, gave them excellent marks. And that's how that contractor went ahead to get another contract, as you had pointed I'm out to me, Tara. Just, yes. I'm just going to squeeze in really Very quickly. Very key federal. Yeah. Got to call them out. All right. So, <laughs> Deborah, you're a, you're a good contract nerd, right? You understand this world. I do. Is it pretty quick to sever a contract or at least do something with enforcement when they're failing or whatever? Absolutely. You issue a cure notice and make sure that they fix whatever it is they're supposed to fix or remedy. And if they don't do that, then you can terminate for cause. All right. All right. Here we go. So, and then I assume terminate for cause means something like they probably can't get a contract again that easily when it comes to this program mission. Right. Okay. So, so the system will correct itself. Got it. Absolutely. We need to oh talk. <laughs> off air that's unbelievable I, really. I just got a whole bunch of ideas 
This um, is why we pray every <laughs> every session. That's right. But but it's the same thing over and over again. It's it's not like they're reinventing the wheel. Why reinvent yeah. the wheel if it's been working for them? It's making them a ton of money. There's no reason to reinvent it. They it's been in the oh, dark wow. for so long, no one knew about it. That's why we need great segue for whistleblowers. We need whistleblowers. We need you guys to come out of the woodwork. Start talking about this stuff. Come on, it's got to be eating you inside. And especially oh, yeah. if there's a pattern of activity of how they do it, they're not going to be that creative and covering up either. It's like yes. these people will be able to see it no matter where they're at. Because to my understanding, too, by the way, Sylvia, you, the smart one there, the nerd there, every state is different when it comes to the CPS foster landscape, right? Like some states operate under a private whatever, some are more public. Like, so there are different vehicles, but they're all going to be doing the same type of thing, right? Right. Right. And, and people need to understand the money that's involved because I think most people believe that you only make like 20, $30 a day per child, but actually with the title for e-funding, uh, the, the agency would receive, depending on the behavior of the child, uh, anywhere from 130 to, you know, on up. So, and that goes by the behaviors. So like if you have a runner, defiant, you know, suicidal, you're going to get about 200 per day. And if you have a sex traffic, you're going to get more. If you have, um, you know, any type of medical condition, autism, et cetera, you're going to get more per day. Um, and then how they, how that's done is basically they give the foster parent, like, um, like when I left, it was $65 a day per child but the, the parents would negotiate. So you're basically, when you're calling around trying to get a placement for a child, you tell the parent the behaviors and they're like, no, I need more money. So you're sitting there negotiating with them and, and uh, going back and forth on a rate. Um, and some of those homes were like requirement of $100 per day per child. So you're, you're supposed to be, what, what you're supposed to be doing is you're supposed to find a child a safe environment to go to. Uh, but what you're doing is you're negotiating uh, a product. And, and you're exactly right, Tara. That's what they look at children as a product. How much money can I get for this child? And so, and, and if you do the math, I mean, if you did three kids, even at $65 a day for 30 days, 31 days, it comes up to, it was close to like six grand a month. And um, I mean, the foster parents were making more than uh, the caseworkers. And then the agency makes more than that. And then right now, the, the system is so overran with kids that they don't even have homes. So what they're doing is they're putting them in hotels and, and offices. We have reports of kids staying in offices for at least up to four nights. And uh, when I was in the system, uh, a child that was in a hotel, it was about $1,000 a night or more, almost two grand a night they'd pay for that. And what they do is they put a behavior aid in with the child. So behavior aid it basically is someone that babysits. That's, that's what they do. Uh, so we've created, uh, we've created a, a really lucrative trafficking issue. So there's a financial incentive and a quota incentive. Mm -hmm. 
that's right yeah. they put it right in front of your face i mean it's it's been incentivized since what 97 the system 97 yep mm -hmm. it's and that's when aspa that's the adoption safe and families act uh was uh put in place by uh the clintons of course um and so that was the 15 months. That's that's what gave the child. That's what gave the case plan 15 months, or your child goes up for adoption. And um, so that's where that comes from, the 15 months. And and basically, what the way that I was taught was that they did that, and this was from you know the director, that they did that because they didn't want the children to be in care for five or six years. So they put the 15 months on it so that the child didn't stay in care, but had a permanent home. Well, that sounds great. It sounds mm -hmm. marvelous and you go with it. But what it really does is it helps them uh, not be able to keep complete the plan, they railroad them, and then they adopt the child out. And then if the child does not adapt to the family, they go back in foster care and they're readopted. You can be readopted. Most of the kids that I that were in the foster system were adopted kids, and that's because they did not adapt to the adopted family. How many cases does a case manager have? I just got to ask. Well, um, the government agency, there is no, uh, there's no point like. There's no stopping point. You can have 200 cases, you can have 300 cases, but with an agency, I was, I worked at a therapeutic agency and the max that we had was 15. We, and that was because they're crisis kids. Now these are sexually abused kids. So you have, you, you have a lot more things that you have to deal with, but the government, there's no stopping point. And let's not forget, if we get these kids with disabilities or we need to get it, we got to rush them to a therapist. Oh, now look, oh, the therapist is on our side, bought by the system also, folks. And then you got to get big pharma involved. See, it's this right. big fun machine. They all just, they jump around. It's like that uh, crane game, right? They're all inside of it just and rigging the whole system so you can't win. It's a joke. The whole thing's a joke. It's got to be changed. We need you guys. Please come out of the systems, any one of these systems. So there's um, Title IV funding. I'm sorry, there's Title IV funding that goes to the operation itself. And I'm assuming, I'm just assuming here, by the way, that that pharma part where these, you know, troubled kids, which make more money, are probably getting doped up on who knows what kind of pharmaceuticals. That's probably getting government funding as well, right? Right. So, but that comes from a different fund. So that's from your Medicaid. Right. So but that's coming from our fund. We are paying the whole Oh, thing. yeah. Oh, yeah. taxpayers are funding all of this. And not only that, but Tara, it comes from Social Security. Yeah. Tara, how do you phrase it again? What's this called? Government-sponsored, taxpayer-funded child trafficking. Yeah. There's a lot of Can't jobs say in there and that information flow. Yeah, we, yeah. yeah. Can't say it better than that. Wow. Mm -hmm. It's just sick. And now and I'm hoping the audience sees how this all fits neatly together, this big puzzle. And if you're an, if you're a, a, in another industry that you see the, a similar thing going on, some kind of systemic type pattern, please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, we want this to blow up. And if you are watching, please, if you can help us with the algorithms, uh, if you can like and share, that would be awesome. I would definitely appreciate that. 
Um, I'm sorry I keep cutting also, in, but can I yeah, go ahead. say one more thing? Especially because yeah. when we, if we're asking for people to come forward, right? We ask people to reach yeah. out to you guys. This is important to understand too, the, the safety part. So when I did the, all these searches inside of, you know, like who is this transnational organized criminal, right? I'm doing a lot of searches and a lot of systems. Those things are all logged, okay? Government had no idea who I was. Federal government had no idea who it was until I went public myself. Fine. And it sounds like the person that Deborah was speaking to that the, the FBI agents, that's not a very high caliber as well. I, I promise you people, you will be safe. Like they're, we're not exactly dealing with a very right enemy or sorry, opposition. They're not exactly the most caring at their job. So don't worry. The, the gut feeling you have of desperation, whenever, maybe a little bit of anger. Don't let fear be a stopping point for that anger. Let it, let it come out, reach out. Yes. You know, there's one other, there's one other group I want to reach out to the parents. If you've been affected by CPS or, or um, gosh, any of this, actually, but especially CPS, foster care system, we need you to come forward, too. We we do a show, Rescue the Fosters, on Thursday evenings. We also do Let Our Children on Tuesdays. Um, either one of those shows, you're welcome to come on and tell your story. We're trying to build a catalog, folks. Um, when this all breaks, and it will, it's this is the season of justice. It's all going to come down. The whole pyramid's going to topple. Uh we need to have a backlog of stories of parents and families that have been ripped apart by this system and all these poor kids that have been taken from their home countries and brought over here with the promise of a better life, supposedly. Uh, and then they're thrown into a hotel room. You know, Tara, actually, before I forget, I'm going to get off my diatribe there. And I want, can you tell the story about the um, hotels that they were putting the kids into. Uh, supposedly they had all these different, I think it was different addresses and then apparently it wasn't really all these different addresses if I remember the story correctly. So are we talking about Carlos and working at the hotel in New York? No, uh, this was uh, the one in uh, Pomona, I think it was. Wasn't it just outside of Pomona? You saw, there was something that was very suspicious about the addresses that I remember you brought up the last time. Oh, we had well, spoke. there were tons of, of addresses mm -hmm. that were suspicious and Deb could tell stories too, but we found places where, uh, just like in Bonita Springs, this was in Austin, Texas. We found on a, so on one block, so imagine a block that's got four apartments, you know, on the block, there would be 109 children released in four apartment buildings. Now, people tried to tell me, but Tara, you just don't understand. There are places where migrants tend to go. So it makes sense. And I said, okay, riddle me this, Batman. How is it that I have a person in one of those apartments who's sponsoring children in, in two different apartments? How is that possible? You can't tell me this is family reunification. So I just want to say, HHS says this is family reunification. They have a sponsor fill out what's called an FRA, a family reunification application. They then give the sponsor a family reunification package. Well, then how is it that there's even a category three sponsor, which is unrelated? How is that possible? How is it that we have a category two B, which is someone who the child has never lived with. You can't reunify people who don't know each other. So this, this whole thing is absolutely unbelievable on all sides. You know, um, Deb actually did the case on uh, Houston, Texas, 
where there were over 300 children released in like a three square mile radius, 300 kids. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's being sold as family reunification, which is thought, which is why I left my agency to help HHS. And what I discovered, you know, in that deep darkness in Pomona is that, you know, children, and as we know now, because we've seen in the news, you know, 85,000 children are gone. And it's probably more than that, because to be found, all somebody has to do is answer the phone. If somebody answers the phone, oh, the child's found. Um, that's just, it's, it's stunning to me. So I'm sure Deb has some other things she'd like to say too. Yeah, I was just trying to actually, like, as you brought it up, like I'm looking here, um, you know, for some addresses. And I don't know if I can call out the addresses, but I have the physical address for where some of these kids went to in these Houston, Texas cases. And so I can just tell you one of them, 7113 Gulf Freeway. Um, we sent kids there. That is Allegiance Bank. It's not actually a home. So that's just one example of several. Uh, oh, okay, wait, wait. <laughs> can you repeat that, Deborah? I just... <laughs> Sure. So oh one of the locations that I had noted down that we <laughs> say it slowly, I'm going to do this while we do this. So yeah, say I... slowly. Yeah. 7113 Gulf Freeway in Houston, Texas. That that is an allegiance bank. That's where we sent a child to. <laughs> Speechless. That, that's just oh one of many. Um, I'm sure Tara has spoken to you about. Um, you know, locations, you know, in or about the Center of Old Gentlemen's Club in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, the <laughs> I never mentioned it. You should tell never, that story. Never heard yes, that one. No. Nope. Okay. Well, th this was one of the cases where um, it just took a couple more clicks on Google Earth to figure out where you were sending a kid. And so I remember um, looking at an address because we were a table, you know, Tara and myself, and there was another um, federal employee there that was um, overseeing the SIRs, the significant incident reports. Anyhow, uh, a case came to me and they said, you know, that this one seemed kind of suspicious. So I'm going through the, the protocols that I kind of established, you know, for myself that, that we established as a team together. And uh, I, I looked at the address and when, you know, I said, well, that's just the rooftop. Let's do a couple more clicks on Google Earth to see what the front looks like. And that's where I discovered that the address that was given to this case manager was actually the Centerfold Gentlemen's Club in Jacksonville, Florida. So that was that was one. So I remember just getting on the mic and saying, hey, everyone, please stop what you're doing. Give me just two minutes of your attention, please put in this address. They put in the address. I said, go to Google Earth, put in this address. And, you know, at that point, they're like, okay. And then I'm like, do two clicks down, you know, do do clicks south. And you could just hear across the room, the gasps, you know, because um, I, I said, this is where, this is where we, we've sent children to. So just be aware. Um, so, you know, that's just one or two or three examples of places that, you know, we've sent children to. So, I mean, HHS can say that they're, you know, doing proper vetting, but again, these are untrained people. They, you know, the young lady that was handling this particular case, you know, didn't realize, you know, she thought, hey, if I just look at the, the rooftop and it's a real building, you know, I'm good to go. But, you know, it, it, there's many children that, that get passed and overlooked, unfortunately, because we're not doing our due diligence. Yeah, and that's where the lack of experience comes in, and, yes. and they know it. 
you know, this kind of ties together with uh, Sylvia. A lot of these uh, kids, when they run out of beds at uh, group homes, foster care centers, Sylvia, where do these kids end up? Something very similar. Well, yeah, it's the offices. They're putting them in the offices, hotels. It's it's um, it's not stability. Yeah, they'll put them in motels, anything they can they can get them into. Because uh, now this is a question I have: How do you run out of beds? Oh, that's right, because you got to meet quotas, and and if you can right. go over the quota, well, that's even better. So we'll just throw these kids in another place who cares where they go we're just getting that that green back coming in every month right I'm, I'm so disgusted by all of this i i and it's every week i think i get another level of disgust um i didn't mm -hmm. think i could get to that level <laughs> but it's you always hear another little nugget like to send kids to a gentleman's club how in the world like i mean <laughs> and i know that's not a one-off i'm sure that's happened many times that's not like just, you know, that just happened this one time. It, it shouldn't happen once, but you know it's happening multiple times under watch. It's it's absolutely disgusting. I hope this this infuriates a whole bunch of people out there watching, and you're, it's a call to action. Again, please come forward. The uh, The information's right here on the screen. You can reach Sylvia at rescuethefosters.org. Uh, you can leave drop an email there. Uh, her phone number's on there. If you or If you're in need of help, if you're mm -hmm. uh, in the system and you need help, uh, if you're a runaway and you need help, you can call. There's lots. It, it's there's lots of people in need out there tonight. And so, if you're watching the show, if you just happen to come across this show tonight, please reach out to us. Nothing to be fearful of. We want to help. That's what we're here for. Yeah, Go and ahead, it sounds Aaron. like is for for the CPS side, especially for what Sylvia's talking about. The indicators and warnings, as you would call them, the INW. Sounds pretty simple. If they're asking you to not tell the truth, sounds to me like that's where the corruption kind of is very evident. Is that accurate, you think, or no? Well, yeah, because the other thing, and I don't think I mentioned this, was that we were not allowed to put our concerns about the foster home in our notes. Uh, we could only put um, our concerns about the biological family, and we were encouraged to talk um, you know, bad about the biological family and strengths on the foster family. Um, and then the way that the system works is that you put in your notes and it goes to a supervisor and the supervisor approves those notes. And if they don't agree with them, then they delete them and they make them make you write it until you write it just how they want it. So it becomes a copy and paste system. So they're basically because you have no control over your notes. And that's how they control the narrative. Um, there was something else I was gonna say um, that kind of kind of left. Did Deborah or uh, Tara? Did you guys see that at all? Did they ever make you change? Yeah, <laughs> rhetorical yes. question, but yes, <laughs> I'm gonna let Deb take that one too, Deb. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, if they did not agree, um, you know, if they, the leadership, they would definitely have you rewrite it. They would shame the case managers and say, I can't believe you're coming back to my office, you know, with a denial for this child. Like they're trying to, you know, deny them to the sponsor. And, you know, they listed it for X, Y, Z reasons. They're like, like, where in the policy does it says that, you know, 
oh, you didn't do your research, go back and figure out how to do this properly. So they would shame them. They would shame them into rewriting it properly and getting the examples from someone who quote unquote knew how to do it properly. Absolutely. This happened time and time again when the, when the um, federal field specialist did not agree with what was written in the notes. All right, wow. so, in, so again, indicators and warnings. So you're being asked to not tell the truth or mm -hmm. you're being shamed. Right. Because if we're asking people to come forward, it's like the ones might be like, you know, oh, I do think something's wrong. But what this is what you're looking for. You're being told a lie or you're being shamed into doing your job, which is doing your job. So yeah, mm -hmm. indicators and warnings. If you're seeing that, you're there. You gotta come forward. That's yeah, bully tactics. Yeah. Yep. Tara, you saw the same? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean the case managers would say they would be very upset when they are trying to get a denial release because they have probable cause to believe there is trafficking going on or that there is a serious danger or that there's lies, you know, because they really do care. Once they found out that the kids were being trafficked, they were trying to do everything they could. And so they were very distraught. And we had, Deb, you'll probably remember this. We were sitting at a table. We were briefing the federal field specialists. We were actually in the case management room and briefing the federal field specialist on Houston. And another case manager walked up and she had stuff also in Houston, Texas. And she started getting really animated, like, but you don't understand and we can't release. And the federal field specialist told her, you better remember who you're talking to. Absolutely. Do you I remember, remember that? that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yep, I remember, remember who remember. you're talking to. Exactly. I can see her right in front of me now. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, people tried to speak up and people were very passionate about it. And and it's of course we should be, and that's normal. But they try to make you think you're crazy when you're the one who actually really cares about the child. So yeah, same tactics. So a woman, sorry, a woman who's so Sylvia got reprimanded all the time. I was never <laughs> called a liar. Tara got walked off a site and some <laughs> other woman was literally punked into basically shut up. Sounds like yeah. a pattern. It sounds like if you see these things, sure you're does. probably in it. Recognize again, like recognize your scenario, your scenario. What are you in? Indicators and warnings. Right. And I just want to say too, Deb was was very humble in talking about her experience. Deb is a core three, okay, a core three contracting officer. Deb contracting knows her business. Representative. Yes, contracting officer's representative. Yes, but she, I'm contracting certified. I'm contracting certified professional. Yes. Yes. So she's an expert. All right. She's an expert who was told, uh, get out of here. You're not going to get a chance to look at the contract. When she could have helped when we had all of these problems. So it's very strange that you could be the person with the education, you could be the person who's seeing what's happening. Just because somebody has a title doesn't mean that they, that they know everything. I mean, I just wanna say people lead at all levels and leadership is not about a title that you have. So just because your boss has, maybe has a different title than you, doesn't mean they have the, you know, the, authority on smarts or brains so just a reminder yeah how because do these... so sorry you go Gino. 
I, I was just going to say, how do these people climb the company ladder? What's the qualifications? They just they just obey and nod their heads yes, and then they just mysteriously climb an, another rung on the ladder. Hmm. Basically, I mean, the, from what I observed, at least within HHS, yes, if you if you played along and didn't cause any waves, right? Um, you know, you were on the good list. If you were outspoken or like Tara said, got animated or excited about, hey, I, I found something, it's really important, um, you know, um, you know, yeah, it was typically like, you know, calm down. You know, I know that there were agent, there were uh, case managers that, um, you know, were removed because they pushed back and, you know, the federal field specialist didn't like that. So they, they were removed. They were let go. Do you know if they, re they received any bonuses? Maybe a Christmas gift that others weren't getting or no, I don't, incentives? No, okay. don't know about that. No, not, not sure about that. But I will say, because I think Gino hits on an important point. And as Sylvia was saying, there's a lot of money involved. So mm -hmm. if we just look um, at the Pomona Fairplex as an emergency site, it was funded for less than six months. It wasn't opened for six months, almost six months. Uh, the contract was over $600 million. So you're talking, when you average that out, you're talking about a million dollars a month to a contractor. The person who was the lead on the site, Dan, and again, if you go through, you know, usaspending.gov, he was earning a little over $51,000 a month. $51,000 a month for a program that's failing, you get an F. So there's a lot of money involved. There's no incentive for the people on the ground who are seeing what's happening to say anything. It's like, whoop, nothing here, man. We're keeping this bankroll going. Hmm. Tara, can you repeat that uh, website again? Tony, will you drop that in both chats, please? Sure, it's usaspending.gov. So usaspending.gov. And so you. you can go to HHS and you can see where all their money's going to all of their programs. So if you specifically wanted to look at um, the unaccompanied children program, you can navigate down to that. If you want to look at foster care, Medicaid, whatever you want to look at, you can, you hmm. can find it there. You know, there's Follow one... Yeah, follow the money for sure. It's always follow the money, right? And, and everything, anything with government, follow the money. Um, we have a good friend, Danielle, in the chat tonight. And I, it reminded me of one place we didn't mention, hospitals. Uh, okay. So the hospitals are in with CPS and law enforcement. And uh, they do some very heinous things to newborn babies and, you know, mothers. And, and it's, it's really disgusting. Um, hopefully we can get... Her to tell her story one night, Sylvia. We'll see. But uh, it's good to see you, Danielle, in the chat. I told her I would say hi to her tonight. It's her first time in, so hi, hey, Danielle. Danielle. <laughs> hi, Danielle. <laughs> yeah, but the hospitals, we've heard horror stories. Um, actually, uh, just recently on Let Our Children Go, we had a, a mom that was in the hospital, and they just, she had no idea. They just came in and all of a sudden took her kid right off of her, her belly. And, I mean, it wasn't gosh, I don't know, maybe 10, 10 uh, hours into uh, life and this baby's just snatched and taken away. 
and, and there's false allegations made against these poor people. They have no idea why it happens. And then they have to run it through family court, which they own. It's all rigged. It's a rigged system. And mm -hmm. uh, there's no justice, no, no jury of your peers. Uh, family court does not have a jury of your peers. You just get to go before a judge that's hopefully is going to be uh, following the Constitution. Wait, oh, that's right. They don't use the Constitution in family court. I forgot. Yeah, sorry. Mm -hmm. And and we've heard that from several people. That is not just me making some, you know, allegation mm -hmm. here. I'm, that is the truth. They do not use the Constitution. They are above the law. It's a sick system, folks. Very sick. Right, Sylvia? So sick. And I also want to add that um, in a lot of the cases that I reached out to the parents and looked at their paperwork, it was all fraud, complete fraud, not, not one procedure, not one policy followed. Um, so there are, I mean, and we do have a lot of stories on here. If you're new to Rescue the Fosters, you can go through and look, but, um, this is fraud. It's not, it's complete, legit child kidnapping. That's what we're funding. It's funny. You think a kidnapper is like the bad guy, right? And he's wearing the, uh, the mask over his face. So you can't see who he is. Right. And he comes in the dark. These people are doing it right in daylight, right in the hospital, mm -hmm. right at people's doorsteps knocking on the door with, you know, fake warrants and all this other stuff and the, and the cops right by their side assisting in it. And it's going on every single day in this country in all 50 states, folks. We're all susceptible it to it. But it's incredibly easy to see, though, too. And that's to me the hard part is, I guess, accepting it because, you know, again, when I saw those encounters, I was like, what is this? And then when I looked it up, the first thing I was like, why would an MS-13 member be trying to get a kid? Like my first thing was like just confusion and doubt, like eh, well, what? But then the more you didn't do it, it's like, oh no, yeah, they are sponsoring children. That's actually happening. And then when Tara and Deborah are looking at their things, it's like, now come on, there, there's, there's no way. So it's like, I'm. That's part of the process. Is like, no, uh, uh. It's like denial, if you will. It's part of the process. Accept it. It's real. And then look at your surroundings. If you're being told to lie, or if you're being shamed. It is happening and you are seeing it. So it's very important to you know, recognize the situation you're in so that way you know what to do. And I hope we know what to do by now, which is to contact and go from there. So Yes, contact me at help at rescuethefosters.org. Um, the other thing is, is when I, when I first was trying to find help, there was nowhere to go. Um, I was contacting every department. Uh, I mean, you name it. I contacted the, the Children's Advocacy of Georgia. Um, I explained the cover-ups that um, Elts Aidmore was part of. Um, the reason why I left was because I was, um, they were trying to get me to cover for foster parent drinking and driving with kids in the car, and I refused to do so. I reported that. I gave all the evidence. I had uh, an investigator working with me. Her name is Beth Smith. She was working with me. And then as soon as I handed her the evidence, she stopped communicating with me. Um, I reported them to opm.gov, never got a response. Uh, I contacted every department I could possibly think of and everybody said, we don't know where to go. So um, we, are, we are learning, you know, this is a learning process basically for people 
who want to make change but don't know where to go. Um, so you can contact me at help at rescuethefosters.org. You can call me on my cell phone. Uh, you can, uh, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram, Telegram. <laughs> I'm on all of the channels. So you can reach out. You're muted. Hit the wrong button, sorry. <laughs> uh, Tony, if you can drop uh, Sylvia's link tree in the, um, is it link tree or all my links? All my links, sorry, that's the one. I haven't done, so I I haven't done that yet. Oh, I um, thought you had one. Oh. <laughs> What's wrong with you, Sylvia? Get with the get with the program. <laughs> if you're going to promote all your links, you should have a link for your all my links. It's nice to That's do funny. that. <laughs> She's been pretty She's busy. She's busy folks. rescuing yeah. kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> you know the dark the dark secret here, and maybe it's not so dark anymore, is that children are the currency of the elite. Okay, it's mm -hmm. it's disgusting, but it's true. That is, they use children for many many different things. Blackmail being one of them. They get people in very compromising positions, so they own them politically or in the entertainment uh, industry, and, and that's a very well-known fact. The other thing is, why children? Because children are a reusable resource. They can keep making money off a child. Drugs, it's a one-time deal. Weapons, it's pretty much a one-time deal, unless they're selling them back and forth. But children, no, you can keep using them. And I, and I know that's disgusting, and we don't like to think about those things. But you have to. It is time. It is time. Right now is the season of justice. It has to end now. It cannot continue. Millions and millions of children every year go missing. Millions across, and, and well, I don't know how many across. That too, you know, with the runaways. That's, oh, the runaways is another. Oh my gosh. Yeah, you can go down. There's so many different rabbit trails to go down. I don't know if we can cover it all in one show. I mean, we've talked about it on many other shows, so you can go back and watch some of the other programs. But I got to tell you, that's what we're up against. And why? And then we have to ask this question, and, and I'd like to get an answer from all of you. Why aren't politicians helping us? Why isn't anybody coming forward saying, gosh, you know, guys, this is really a noble cause. I think I need to help you. Has anybody been, you know, has anybody reached out to, has, uh, let me, well, I'll pick on Florida. Um, has governor, has governor DeSantis reached out to any of us to try to help? I know we've reached out to him several times. We have reached out to every department you can possibly think mm -hmm. of. And I have recorded all of those conversations, um, and they will be going out soon. Um, actually we might hold a Twitter space and just release all of those. I have, um, I have DeSantis, I have Ashley Mooney, I have the marshals. I have, um, we didn't contact the FBI because we were told that there were no uh, honest FBI in Florida, okay? So we didn't contact them. But I do have at least 12 to 20 recordings of contacting people in Florida asking for help of parents fighting for their children that they have completed the case plan multiple times, not just one time and they are not receiving their kids back and they are going up for adoption. So we will be releasing those recordings. And I've reached out by email to the uh, offices there, the eight, uh, AG's office in Florida multiple times. And the response I got back was because, I mean, I told them I care about children, I'd like to help. 
um, in any way I can. I'm working with a team of people that are, you know, working some big cases and things like that. And the response I got was, well, I'm sorry, you're not a Florida resident. So apparently you have to be a Florida resident to help uh, save children. I don't understand mm -hmm. that policy, but that might be something we, we want to look into too. So, so the only thing I would like to add, and I posted it on Twitter when it came out, is I do know that um, they did convene a grand jury in Florida. There was a presentment that was done. Now, that was focused on unaccompanied children. Uh, so I have no idea, you know, who they're, you know, who they're talking to or how they're, you know, getting their information regarding the CPS cases mm -hmm. and all of that. But I definitely think it should be pursued with every attorney general. It should be pursued through HHS. And if people don't know, Absolutely. if you go to hhs.gov, there is a thing for the Office of Inspector General. It either says report fraud here or contact Office of Inspector General. And I would definitely be doing that. I have so emails from them too. I emailed and left voice. I, I emailed and spoke to their office. They mm. will not help. Wow. Can I ask a question too? Cool. Yeah. I want to be able to connect with people on like the human level of, you know, like to make a decision or not. So at, for all of you ladies, what was your inflection point of when you decided to do whatever you did? Like, what was that actual moment, whether you felt or whether you, your thought process, your reasoning, your logic, or just like your, you know, your, your spirit being driven, whatever. What was it for you, you think? You want me to go first? <laughs> you you spill first, so yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so basically it was, I cannot morally do this job. Um, I was constantly, like I was asked to falsify documents. I was asked to cover for uh, foster parents. Um, I, when I did, go to my supervisor with concerns about the foster parent i was uh i was brought into a meeting with concerns that i advocated for the children more than i advocated for the foster parents and i said yes absolutely i advocate for the children more than i uh, advocate for the foster parents so for me it was like i cannot morally work in this position because every day i was having to make a decision and it was a moral line that I was crossing every day. And um, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. Now I'll go next. Um, for me, it was, um, it was right away. I mean, as soon as I saw that, you know, that, that case where, you know, they, they were being trafficked in the Benita Springs area. Um, I mean, it was immediate. It was, it was a punch in my gut. I mean, my spirit, like I couldn't, I, really almost felt like I couldn't handle it, but I had to stay there and stick it through. But I mean, immediately, immediately from the inception, I said, this is wrong. And I, like, I just, I just burned with, with a righteous anger. I'm just going to say it's righteous anger because I can't imagine that I, I live in a world where this is happening and nothing is being done about it. So I contacted the FBI pretty early on um, after finding out about that case and feeling like nothing was being done. And I mean, Tara was very good in going through all the right channels where I was just getting so frustrated because I was like, they're not doing anything. But Tara, Tara raised the flag and made sure that every sing that the process was followed. She contacted OIGs, she contacted special counsel, she contacted, you know, all of those different entities. 
um, the proper way. And I said, I just, I, I just want to take this straight to the top. So I'm going to, you know, go to the FBI and just didn't really get much result from that. I did contact a senator's office as well while I was there. Um, I, I was really fearful, you know, and so I, I actually called my friend and my friend called into Senator Portman's office and I left a message there, um, but I didn't get a call back. So um, for me, it was just immediate. I was like, I, I can't be a part of this. I, I can't be a part of this um, and not report it. So uh, for me, it was immediately. Yeah. Yeah. When we were um, looking at that Bonita Springs case, we made the decision and we're looking into the darkness of what this really is. And we made the decision that we were going to do whatever it took to stood up, you know, to stand up for the children, to be their voice. And I remember, you know, theologically, and all I can say is if anyone's listening from Dallas Theological Seminary or you're, you're a theology student anywhere, I have to big, uh, you know, give a big shout out to my friends at Dallas Seminary who really helped me through this because I had never been this close to darkness and it hadn't been for, if it hadn't been for Deb and my friends, I would not, you know, I ultimately was Jesus working through them, right, to help me out. <laughs> Uh, because God will give you what he calls you to. He will give you the courage. He will give you the grace. He will give you the strength to do whatever he's calling you to do. But I knew in my heart that I could not face Jesus on the last day because he's coming. Someone on the site, they said, Tara, you remember in the Bible where it says that Jesus is coming in flaming fire? Well, this is what's going to bring it. And I remember telling her, well, you could be right. <laughs> but um, I knew that on the day that I see Jesus face to face, I was not going to be able to stand there and expect mercy if I did not stand up for his children. And so I just believed that he was going to be with me through whatever he was calling me to do for the sake of these kids. I have never in my life felt like a burden. And I'm thinking, is this right? Is this not right? And yet, you know, we read Paul in the Bible and he talks about the burden that he had for the church. And I thought, well, if God can give Paul a burden for the church, he can give me a burden for whatever he chooses. And so this is the burden that I have, but this is the road I'm going to walk. And Deb also, you know, made the commitment. We're going to walk through whatever doors God opens. And like here, having this opportunity to, to share the story again, that children are today we're having this conversation and there are children who are being sold for sex right now you know we're having this conversation and there are children who are at work on an overnight shift they're middle schoolers they're hungry they have headaches because the chemicals they're around or they're getting burned they might fall off you know a piece of equipment they might die tonight on their job and then there's other unspeakable things and we need to, we need to be their voice. So that's, that's my story. Thank you for that, Tara. And I think yeah. it's important to say, sorry, just really quick. It's no, important no. to say, I think um, it's going to suck when you realize that you've been part of the process. That is going to suck. That's going to be something very, very hard, I think. But that's where you had your point. That's the moment you're like, okay, cool. Do I do the right thing now or not? Um, because I was actually, I was, I was an atheist for a long time. 
and I was still an atheist when I when I did this thing back in 2021. But this is what took me back to Christ. And and I, by the way, I've completely, I mean, I have sprinted straight to it. Um, but no, I think you're absolutely right, though. It's like we're all going to die one day. And I do believe that this life is a vessel. And I really hope I've been told I do a good job because if I, if, if it didn't happen, if I just like ignored it, I couldn't even imagine. So it sucks to be, to know, it sucks to learn like, yeah, this is happening, but that's also the best moment in your life because now you can do something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, and I, I do like want to, oh, sorry, Go ahead, I was going to say one last yeah. thing, Gino, and that is, you know, throughout history, God has used ordinary people mm-hmm. to do extraordinary things. That's right. And don't be afraid because you plus God is greater than anything. Absolutely. Do not fear. Yep. If, if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, um, I was going to say, I want to throw this caveat out there too. There's a lot of good people just trapped in bad systems. And, and I don't want to let that go by the wayside here. I, there's a lot of you out there that this is gut-wrenching for you. You know, you're thinking every day you got to go to this job and you're thinking, I can't do it another day, but I got to get a paycheck. We understand that. All the, everybody on this panel had to deal with that. And, and that's a real life situation. We understand that. But I promise you, you will never regret that decision if you come out you will never regret it because you did the right moral thing. You stood up for children. And just like just like uh, Tara and Aaron both said, one day we're going to stand before our creator. And we do have to give an account for what we did and what we didn't do. Um, if you're in Christ, thank God. I mean, you're saved by his blood and it's not, it's not based, you know, on what you didn't do. But you will have to answer for what you didn't do. And there's lesser rewards and, and all that. That's theological. We can go down that on, a, on another show, on my other shows. But I just want to make that point that there's so many good people out there and you're just trapped in a bad system. So if you're feeling that tug on your heart tonight, please reach out. Reach out to us. Let your story be told. And you, like I said, you don't have to come on camera. If you're scared to come on camera right now, you don't have to. We can, we can even, if you want to just have your voice on camera, you can do that. If you don't want either... Just send us an email and tell us your story. That anything. We're we're desperate right now. We need you. We need people in the system to come out. So um, with that being said, is does anybody got any uh, final words? Um, yeah, my my final words is what you just said. Um, I do understand the whole, the, the gravity of like, but I have to pride my family. And that's true. But when we crash the system down, you're not going to have a job in that thing anyways then. So it's... <laughs> There, we are going to make change. It's not just the five of us, a lot of us, because I guarantee you right now, people are watching this and going like, wait, doesn't my cousin work for them? Or like, you know, hey, did, doesn't your girlfriend, isn't she a, a behavioral aid? People will hear this and start acting. It's the way it works. It's just, it's a chain reaction and it's going to happen. Yeah. Tara, any last words? I'm just thankful for all of you. I'm thankful for all of you and listeners do not fear. Well, the feeling is mutual. I love all you guys. I thank you uh, for everybody that's been watching tonight. We've had a pretty good, pretty good audience out there on and off on both platforms. We are just thankful for you again, please like, and share, uh, Deborah, any last words? Um, I mean, just thankful for the opportunity to come and share my story. Um, again, I, I have no motive or agenda other than 
just to speak the truth and to save children that that's the goal i mean we know that horrific things are happening to children um i'm not the only one it's not just me tara and aaron there are multiple people that have come forward to talk about this it's in the news it's in you know papers mm -hmm. uh, it's real it's we're, we're not conspiracy theorists i mean this is just our experience i never expected that this would be where my life would take me but it's the mission that god purposed me with and gave to me and so i'm just doing the best i can to tell the truth um this is my first live interview however um i have been um you know working with um you know law enforcement and um mm -hmm. courts and providing my story um kind of in the shadows not really publicly um but um Again, just want to thank you guys and encourage any of you folks that are working in the system to please come forward. You're not alone. And we thank you. And um, the children are counting on you. You'll never regret the decision to to come forward. It's the right thing to do. Um, God will provide. Don't be scared. Oh, thank you, Deborah. Uh, one, one last question I forgot about. In your respective departments, if you had to guess how many people want to talk, but they won't, do you have any idea? I would 17 percent 17 percent that's that's pretty that's pretty precise <laughs> i'm gonna say it's a lot higher than that aaron yeah. or, um I, I i know the case managers that i worked with uh in pomona there are so many that have stories people in transportation people in case management um you know people that were doing the flights they're so scared to come forward. And so uh, some of them have come forward, but not publicly, but they are scared to death that they just will never get work again. And so they have families they have to take care of. And so I would say it's a lot higher than that for, for us. Uh, I'm sure Tara would agree. Yeah, I agree with Deb. There's a lot of people who wanna come forward, but are just, you know, they're really scared of what the consequences might be. But as Deb said, there there are, there are people who have come forward, just not public like this. Mm. You know, like Deb, she's been a warrior. She's been since June of 2021. She's been report, report, report up the chain and outside of the chain. So. And that yeah. is good enough. Even anonymously, that is good enough. Yes. Right. Right. Sylvia, any last words? Um, well, I just want to thank everyone tonight for coming forward. And really, um, it's not as bad once after the first podcast, it's really not that bad. You don't have to come on a podcast if you don't want to come on a podcast. Um, but thank you all. And I also want to say that when I became a social worker, I did not consent to trafficking children. That is not why I went into uh, social work. So uh, I think that's where um, we need more people to just come forward. I've, I agree with you guys. I think it's way higher than 17%, but um, I'm sure that's a good number, Aaron. <laughs> hey, was I was a fed, so I'm yeah. a different data pool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, say no more. Well, guys, thank you all so much. We really appreciate each one of you and everything you're doing. Um, I know we'll be working closely together for the days ahead. Um, I do believe there's an avalanche of whistleblowers that will come forth. I believe, I you know, this is going to sound crazy to some of you out there, but I believe God has already shown me that, that that day was coming, and I believe it's right now. Um, and there's going to be big names coming forward. 
Um, I think you're going to be hearing a lot of big names in the coming days. And, uh, and I think that's going to cause God's, God's parting the Red Sea right now. He's, it's, it's the time for whistleblowers to come forth because when a couple come forth and the avalanche starts, it, it creates this thing like, you know, I'm not in it alone. I can do this now. I've got support. I have a support system near me and, and by me and willing to help me. And then there's going to be healing on the other side of this. You know, we're going to have to get to the healing part of this. But it's one step at a time. And I'm just appreciative of all of you and everything you're doing. Again, guys, we're making that last plea. If you're in this, in any of these systems, please come forward, contact us via, you know, actually, we're all on Twitter. Uh, Tony had put the uh, links or all my links in the uh, chats. So you guys can check me out there if you want to send me a message. Uh, Sylvia, Tara, all of us, you can reach out to any of us. De Debbie, um, I don't know. Did you want to promote any of your links, your social media? Um, I, so I don't have any social media. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, that makes it I'm easy. I'm like though. the only person <laughs> in America that doesn't have social media. Um, but I will be happy to create an account for the cause of this greater good that we're trying to achieve. So. Yes. Yes. Thank you. You can get that to uh, you Tony, later. <laughs> Tony said, don't forget the announcement. Yes. I'm going to play the Nancy Schaefer video that you made. Tony, our, our great, uh, friend and moderator here created a video of, of the uh, great late Nancy Schaefer. Uh, if you don't know who Nancy Schaefer was, she was a senator in Georgia. She was murdered in, uh, was it 2010, Sylvia? 2010, yeah. 2010. Uh, and she was very, very outspoken about what was going on with CPS and the foster care system and a little too outspoken, apparently. Um, and But I'll tell you, you, you'll never see a braver woman um, she was very uh, detailed in her presentations. She laid it out. I think, didn't she write a book too? I think she had a book out. Or... She was working on a documentary when, mm -hmm. when she was murdered. Yeah. Amazing woman. Uh, she was a Christian woman. And uh, so we, we want to pay her honor. And uh, we're going to play this, this video on our way out. Um, if you guys want to drop out of the call, I don't want to hold you up. If you want to stick around, we'll talk after. That's fine. But if you want to drop out, you can go ahead. I'm just going to go play. I think this video is about three or four minutes long. So, um, guys, thank, again, thank you again in the uh, Foxhole chat. Thank you over there on Rumble. Uh, we had some good crowds tonight. Appreciate you all. Thank you for watching. Please like and share. And uh, I will be live the Sunday night at 9 p.m., The Blender, with my friend Michael down in Texas. We will see you then. Everybody have a great night. God bless you all. Take care. And again, thank you, panel. Appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. But of Child Protective Services has become a protected empire built on taking children and separating families. This is not to say that there are not those children who do need to be removed from wretched situations and need protection. However, my report is concerned with the children and parents caught up in legal kidnapping. Having worked with probably 300 cases statewide and hundreds and hundreds across the country, and in nearly every state, I am convinced there is no accountability in Child Protective Services. I have come to several conclusions. Two or three are, one, that poor parents, not always, but oftentimes, are targeted to lose their children because they do not have the wherewithal to hire an attorney and fight the system. That caseworkers and social workers are very often guilty of fraud they withhold and destroy evidence. They fabricate evidence, and they seek to terminate parental rights unnecessarily. 
that the separation of families and the snatching of children is growing as the business grows because state and local governments have grown accustomed to having these taxpayer dollars to balance their ever-growing budgets. That the bureaucracy is huge. Look at who is getting paid. State employees, attorneys, court investigators, guardian ad litems, court personnel and judges. There are psychologists, therapists, psychiatrists, counselors, foster parents, adoptive parents, and on and on. All are looking to the children in state custody to provide job security. That the Adoption and the Safe Families Act set in motion first in 1974 by Walter Mondale and later in 1997 by President Bill Clinton offered cash bonuses to the states for every child they adopted out of foster care. In order to receive the adoption incentive bonuses, local child protective services would need more children. They must have merchandise that sells and they must have plenty so the buyer can choose. Some counties often offer, offer four to $6,000 bonus for each child adopted out to strangers and an additional 2,000 for a special needs child. Employees work to keep the federal dollars flowing. But that is only the beginning figure in the formula in which each bonus is multiplied by the percentage that the state has managed to exceed its baseline adoption number. Therefore, states and local communities work hard to reach their goals for increased numbers of adoptions for children in foster care. As you can see, this program is offered from the very top and is run by Health and Human Resources. This is why victims in Child Protective Services get no help from their legislators. It explains why my bill, Senate 415, suffered such defeat in the Judicial Committee and why I was cut off at every juncture and why I was defeated myself last month for my re-election by another Republican. The tax dollars are being used to keep this gigantic system afloat. Many grandparents have called me to get custody of their grandparents before being lost in the system. Grandparents who lose their grandchildren to strangers have lost their own flesh and blood. The children lose their family heritage and grandparents and parents too lose the connection of their heirs and that the National Center on Child Abuse and Neglect in 1998 reported that six times more children died in foster care than in the general public, and that once removed to official safety, these children are far more likely to suffer abuse, including sexual molestation, than in the general population. Think what that number is today, 10 years later. Sorry guys, I'm going to jump on for one more second. I had forgot to make an announcement uh, about our Twitter space that we're going to be doing. I'm not sure on the date. Sylvia, do we have a date yet and a time? Of Twitter space? No. Okay, well, we're working on that, but I just want to throw that out there. Be um, be aware of that. We're, we're going to... Tara will be joining us. Um, Aaron's going to be joining us. And so will I. Well, hopefully Debbie will too. Um, and we're going to have some other people coming forward that are going to be talking basically about what we talked about tonight, uh, maybe in a little more depth. Uh, the Twitter space is a really good opportunity. Um, it's like old time radio. 
it reminds me of when I was a kid. So, and I'm not that old, but I mean, I do remember <laughs> the talk shows like that when I was a kid. So please join us for that. God bless you. Have a great night. Thank you so much for watching us. Take care.